Hi, I'm Maria Theharis or Velo Sos on social media. Welcome back to So Over 50 podcast on Soul Organized Style. Grab a cuppa and relax with us. And little knit sweaters. And then she got cold when she went skiing. She loved to ski. So she sewed a hood onto a sweater. It was called her Superman hood. And people made fun of it at first, but it was the beginning of hoodies. That's Julie Elba of JetSewing.com. You'll also find Julie at Julie underscores Elba on Instagram. Thank you to the Patreon supporters of Soul Organized Style Podcast. Your monthly contribution keeps me producing these episodes for free. Sober 50 intersects with all communities. We're a community that is sober ageism. We're positively leading, being visible in a sewing world. Hello. Morning, Julie. How are you? I'm good. It's evening here and it's lovely to see you. (laughs) Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. For me, this is a real thrill because I've followed you for so long. I've turned down the fangirling. (laughs) We've both followed one another. So I I know what you've been up to for a long time too. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to have you here and thank you for inviting me into your home today. Absolutely. You've always done the Mercado clothes, and I think that was one of the key things that brought me to seeing what you did, because I had no idea what Claire Mercado was all about. Yeah, she was not particularly well known 10 years ago when I started writing about her. People in museums and fashion historians knew about her because she was such an important part of American fashion history. But I think now that I've been writing about her and posting about her more and other fashion historians have been posting about her on Instagram in particular, she's become much better known. What drew you to Claire's designs from the start? I have to say that it was the kind of very streamlined, stripped down idea of them and the very, very modern design. They were all really unique. She had her own way of cutting and draping designs, a lot of which were cut on the bias or the bodices and the jackets were cut on the bias. And she had been influenced by Madeleine Viennet, Mm -hmm. the designer in the 1920s, when Claire went to Paris in the 20s and was studying at Parsons there. And she would get Viennet dresses at the sample sales and take them apart and learn about how they were put together. And then she put them back together and wear them to parties. Well, going back in time, I learned how to sew when I was a child and sewed a lot as a teenager and in my 20s. And also in my 20s and the 70s, vintage fashion was very big. It was just going, crossing the river from being old clothes or things from the thrift store to being something fashionable. And so I got very interested in fashions from the 30s, 40s, 50s. And so I continued that interest through my life. And when I started sewing again in my 50s, those who followed my blog would know that I was collecting patterns from that era and trying to make them and writing about whether I was successful making a dress by Madame Gray or Scaparelli and whether it was a complete disaster, whether it worked out great. So as I started collecting patterns, I became aware, I sort of had an inkling of who Claire McArdle was, but I became aware that she had released patterns through a company called Spadia, which was a company in the 50s, 60s, and 70s 
they got designs from famous designers in the U.S. and also internationally, and they would take the dresses and they would draft patterns from the original designs. So if you find Spadia patterns, most likely you will be able to reconstruct these designs that were being sold in stores at that time. And so I saw her designs and became more interested in her. I became very obsessive about finding her patterns. And I went to one of the archives that holds her papers looking for her patterns. And when I got in there, I discovered that there were letters from Paris to her mother that she had written talking about what Paris was like in the 20s and what the garment industry was like in the 30s. And I started to think, you know, this is not just patterns. This is also, this is a book. This is the story of her life. For a long time, I was hoping I was going to be able to do a book that told the story of her life and had patterns included in the book, which many, many editors told me they loved. But unfortunately, in the end, I was unable to sell it to a publisher. It was just a little bit too out there. But fortunately, I was able to connect with Jenny Rushmore of Cashmere And she and her team helped me put these patterns out. As as you may know, they've been coming out through the Cashmere Club. And so now the book is going to be something separate, and that's coming down the pike a little bit. But I have not stopped being absolutely fascinated with Claire McArdle's designs or her life in the last 10 years. When you spoke about the letters that she wrote to her mother, that gives you a very clear idea of not just what fashion was like, but what society was like as well. So what she could do and then the things that she probably couldn't do that we can do now. Right. Although I have to tell you that she was a very brave young woman and a very spirited young woman. And in that era, women could make their mark and have a career in fashion. And so it was not just her, but it was other people like Deanna Vreeland, the photographer Louise Dahlwolf, Carmel Snow, who was the editor of Harper's Bazaar, who really brought magazines into the modern era because women were really changing. And she, in particular, the American fashion industry had a lot of fast fashion, believe it or not, at the turn of the century. And a lot of it was based on really bad knockoffs of Paris designs. And so they would send a young woman like Claire or some of the fellow students from Parsons to go over to Paris and they would sneak into the fashion shows and they would try to copy the designs or memorize the designs because if they got caught sketching in the fashion shows, they would get kicked out and they would send them home back to the US. And then the manufacturers would try to make something that was sort of like these things that the couturiers were making for French women who had a lot of help and were not living the active American life. But here in the U.S., many of the people here were immigrants, and there were a lot of poor people all over the country who were really trying to make their mark. So the fashion didn't really fit the American lifestyle because women were becoming more active. They were exercising, which was kind of unheard of before. They weren't wearing corsets anymore. They were riding bikes. They had jobs. And so McArdle and some of the people around her, they were sort of bristling at having to stick with this bad French fashion. And so she was trying to come up with ways to use humble fabrics that were warm, like men's suiting. She would cut that on the bias. 
And so it would be, it would make it more flowing and comfortable, but it was also really practical and it was easy to keep clean. It was easy to travel with. One of the famous sets of designs that are in the Metropolitan Museum of Arts Costume Institute's collection is a collection of separates that to us would look really normal now. It's like a halter top and a pair of palazzo pants and a little tulip skirt and a little jacket that goes over it and then a coat that goes over it. And most of them were made out of kind of this ribbed knit, wool knit. So she had them made up for herself and she tried to sell them to the buyers in 1934. And they were so radical in that era, the buyers wouldn't buy them. So she had this very strong vision early on of what women should be wearing, what women would feel comfortable wearing, what worked for women who were traveling, who were working. Her original big hit dress was called a monastic dress. And there were versions in her collections for her entire life after that, which was very gathered up in the top and then loose and flowing like what we would call a tent dress now. And then cinched with a belt or long strings, that kind of thing. And she developed it And women loved it because you could wear it if you felt bloated. You could wear it if you'd gained some weight. It was comfortable. You know, it was easy to wear. You didn't have to wear a lot of structured underwear under it. So she was really a person who was way ahead of her time in terms of thinking about what would work for women and what women wanted to wear. And she really found her niche that way because women loved her clothes. Going back to the original knit fabric designs that she had in mind, that was way before manufacturers were using lycra or spandex or any sort of elastic at the time. Yes, exactly. And so she was using wool jersey or wool knits. For example, the one I was just talking about was mm. a, a ripped knit. And also that was another reason that I believe she was cutting things on the bias is because you didn't have stretch wovens back then. But those of us sewn in the bias know that things have more drape and a little bit more stretch to them. And I think that it really gave her the opportunity to have things that were more comfortable for women, but also were really practical. And she didn't have to redesign a fabric. She was using existing materials at the time and looking at how to make them comfortable and cutting them on the bias is one of those unique ways that people forget about. Yeah, exactly. And she started working a lot with cotton, which was unusual in that era. Mm -hmm. And particularly during World War II, you know, things were rationed. So you couldn't get some of the other fabrics. And so she was working a lot with cotton, a lot with like men's suiting, things that were also easy for women to wear, washable. And particularly in that era, you know, the men were off fighting. And so the women, in particular, the women who were on the college campuses, sort of had the place to themselves. And women were working in factories. They had much more of much more freedom during that era. And the clothes really reflected that. And also you could only use a certain amount of fabric during World War II because it was rationed. And so she had her little wrap popover dresses made out of cotton that were comfortable wash and wear, hit the knee. You know, it was a very freeing design for people to wear. I can see why Claire McArdle is someone that you've got quite obsessed about. Test is is exactly what it is. And one thing also I'd mentioned, a lot of people don't know that she invented ballet flats during World War II. And World War II, shoes were rationed and you would get coupons to buy your pair of shoes and you were supposed to obviously make do and mend. Yep. But she figured out a little way around it, which was that dance shoes and exercise shoes were not rationed. 
So she went to the Capizio dance shoe company and talked to them about making little ballet slippers that out of the fabric of her dresses to go with the dresses. And so they caught on instantly because people could buy some new shoes. They started out with not much of a sole on them, and then it added more of a sole. And that's basically became what we know of as ballet flats. It was the beginning of that. Wow. And that way, women are still wearing dresses that they feel comfortable in with the matching shoes and probably using the fabric and making the matching bag and a hat. Yep. And she also was very big on using like Jersey to make things that were based on exercise clothes. And Mm -hmm. so there were things that looked almost like bike shorts and little knit sweaters. And then she got cold when she went skiing. She loved to ski. So she sewed a hood onto a sweater. It was called her Superman hood. And people made fun of it at first, but it was the beginning of hoodies. So she was really inspired by what women were doing and basically came up with what we consider to be activewear at this point Mm. because she wanted to wear them. She was very active and she wanted to wear them. She ticks all the boxes on developing all of those clothing items that we take for granted these days. Yeah, it was the ones she didn't develop. She also popularized things. She popularized the wrap dress, which started out as a the popover dress during World War II, which was kind of a little smock type of thing that wrapped over that was supposedly developed for women who were like socialites that all of a sudden had to do their own cleaning because all of their help went to work in the defense plants. And so these poor women had to, you know, pick up a duster or whatever. And it was based on something that was called the Hooverette, which was this 1930s little house dress that women had patterns for and would make to clean up around the house. But hers was much more chic and modernist and was a huge hit. And then after that, she came up with more of the the rap style. that was more like wearable that you would wear on the street and that kind of thing. So a lot of people think that Diane von Furstenberg invented the wrap dress, but really McArdle was the one that really popularized it. It was even around in the 30s before that, but she really made them popular. The knowledge of Claire McArdle here in Australia probably wasn't as extensive as it is in America. So watching how you personally went through and did the research and was sewing up her patterns for various events that were quite (laughs) mind-blowing really informed myself and a lot of people who had no idea about her. And so that work that you did way back when you started blogging has been invaluable. Well, that's wonderful to hear. And I would love to say I'd had some grand plan when I started blogging, but really I was just having a really good time. (laughs) But I was at that time when I started doing the McArdles, that's when I was really thinking ahead to my research in terms of doing some patterns and doing the book and really trying to not just recreate these designs, but also make them work for modern sewists, people who maybe didn't learn to sew as a child like I did. And then when I got together with Jenny Rushmore from Kashmirat and her team, we really were able to make them workable for people all over the world and of different sizes and shapes and different sewing levels. And so I'm really proud that we were able to get those out and make them available to people. And there's still more to come, isn't there? The popover. And the popover comes with a little cleaning glove. People think it's an oven mitt, but it's really like a cleaning glove. To reconstruct that, I did have the popover dress. I was able to find one through a collector 
and used a version of the rub-off method for creating patterns. But I use the version that Kenneth King teaches about and that you put silk organza on top of the garment and then you copy the style lines with the organza so you don't destroy the garment. But to get to do the little potholder cleaning mitt, I couldn't find that. I think most of them are lost to time. However, there is one of them in the Metropolitan Museum of Arts collection with the popover, and that was donated by McArdle, and I think it was her personal popover, the one that they were testing out. It has some stains on it, so I think maybe she did some cooking with it. And it had the potholders. So I went down to the basement of the Museum of Modern Art where the wonderful conservators have these fabulous labs where they're taking care of the collections of the textiles and the designs that are in their collection. And they make sure that they're all in good shape. And they had it all laying out for me. And I got to look at the popover and the mitt, but I couldn't touch them, which is common in archives. But they were willing to measure it for me. I was able to ask a lot of questions and take photos. So from that, I was able to reconstruct the little modernist oven mitt cleaning glove. So I'm really excited to get that out. It's going to take me a little while longer, but it's coming. And it'll be one of those pieces that is unique. Yeah. When did you discover Cyber 50? was definitely on Instagram and several years ago, at least. And I thought that there, it was so important because there's such a lot of us, you know, so many of us learn to sew as children and teenagers, but so over 50, it's so much fun to, to participate. And I'm so glad that the organizers are putting it all together. We seem to all be having just a great time sharing our makes and being visible. <laughs> And it's visibility in a positive sense. So it's making sure that people who sew of any age is recognized, but there's always that conversation in the comments or when people do challenges and they decide to get involved with each other. So that's always the fun part of it. Yeah. Well, and having been on Instagram for, I don't know, seven or eight years now, I start to feel like I I know some of these people, even though I haven't met them in person, seeing not only what people make, but they're showing, you know, where they travel and what their life is like. And it's really nice to know that there are these people all over the world that you share this interest with. So I'm a big fan of So Over 50. Listeners, as you can tell, there was a lot more that Julie and I spoke about, and that will be in part two of her podcast, which will be coming up very soon. In part two of Julie's podcast, she'll be talking more about vintage patterns and ideas for sewing with bias. This episode of Cyber 50 Podcast on Soul Organized Style was produced by me, Maria Theoharis, with permission of Julie Elba, sound by bensound.com. If you want to provide a guest post for Sober 50, make sure you direct message Sandy at the Sober 50 account on Instagram. You can subscribe to Soul Organized Style Podcast, but with an S, not a Z on all good podcast apps. Make sure you go back and listen to our free Sober 50 Podcast archive. And if you can, please consider supporting the production of this podcast on Patreon. We look forward to joining you in your sewing room next time. Stay safe, everyone.